Warning, the following podcast contains mature content such as naughty language and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. So I already cut this into the last episode, like, as it was happening. But, like, I never confronted it with you that I did not understand your Twilight reference. (laughs) When you made it at the time in the last episode, when you referred to Renesme as Reynolds rap, I, it blew straight past me, and that's why I didn't react to it at all. <laughs> so when I was listening to the episode, I was like, oh, shit. Oh my god, I'm so stupid. How did I not get it? And I was like, does Emmy probably think I didn't think her joke was funny? <laughs> I felt deeply offended on a personal level. I'm so sorry. I felt attacked. Um, I I really just didn't get it. I was like, when I re-listened to it, I was like, what is this Reynolds rap? Why did she, I remember her mentioning Reynolds rap when we were recording, but I don't know what the fuck is up with that. And then I stopped and I was like, oh my God, (laughs) it's Renesmee. I know who Reynolds rap is. I was so used to the nicknames when we were recording the Twilight series, but I am so out of it now that like, I, it, it, like I said, it just went straight over my head and I'm so sorry, Emmy. It's okay. I'll forgive you someday. Okay. Thank you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) by the way, I'm Sarah, as I already said, that's Emmy. Um, and Emmy, can you answer a question for me? (laughs) What question? What year is it? <laughs> it's 2022. Oh my gosh, we're reading Warm Bodies. We're on we're on part two of Warm Bodies. It feels like just yesterday we were on part one of Warm Bodies. I mean, <laughs> it's been a week. It has been a week. Um, I. <laughs> I'm just not used to us recording this close in succession, considering the last time we recorded uh, previous to last week was in January. So. <laughs> um, That's not that big of a difference. It's not that big of a difference. Um, we are on chapter eight of Warm Bodies, which is actually chapter colon or whatever of Warm Bodies. We picked up on page 65 and read all the way through page 119 so if you have not read that you should you should hit pause go read and come back because it's so good you need to know the context is important i believe unless you don't want to we're not your we're not your parental units we actually i mean i i forgot to tell you i filed adoption papers for what Jen has lovingly named the LM8. <laughs> the eight people who listen to our podcast. I actually don't know the total number. I haven't checked our specs in a very long time. If we had a number higher than eight, we're going to have to work back up to to having a number higher than eight because we took a long break. <laughs> yeah. Also, I just want to point out that... Uh... If you adopted the LM8, yeah, that would make you my mother-in-law. 
But you are also adopting them, so you are your own mother-in-law. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, no, 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 no. We did not adopt Steffi. Steffi is left out. But we did adopt all of the other ones. We We're are leaving parents, Steffi out. Or we can tell them what to do. There is no version of this that is good. <laughs> <laughs> they are all our kids now. Um... And we're in charge. So clean your room, eat a healthy meal, and read Warm Bodies. It's very wow, I was really worried you were going to go the uh, Jordan Peterson route when you started out with clean your room. I would never. That man is repulsive. <laughs> but like I mean, lobster hierarchies, Sarah. Lobster hierarchies. He's insane. Like, I know we're crazy, but that man is out of his mind, and I don't understand. Like, it's... I say I don't understand. The Alex Jones trial has proven that even the craziest of motherfuckers can make a living being crazy. Uh, but every every new detail I get about the Alex Jones trial makes me scream do you think he'll ever get punished or do you think that trump's ravenous supporters will overthrow our democracy first i don't know the hard thing is i support government overthrow but not for the reasons (laughs) that Trump supporters want to overthrow the government. Like, they want to overthrow the government because they believe the election was illegitimate. That's not true. <laughs> it was and, legitimate. <laughs> and Mar-a-Lago is being rated as a political scheme. Yeah. I am simply an anarchist. <laughs> I, <laughs> like, I'm I'm a humble commie, okay? Like, don't, I, I'm not here trying to overthrow things because I believe in the deep state. I just think that our government is a piece of shit. <laughs> That's beside the point. Our government is a piece of shit. (sighs) Anyway. (laughs) For legal reasons, overthrow of the government is a joke. Yeah, for legal reasons, that was a joke. Um, But you do suck. They do suck. Except for you, Bernie Sanders and AOC. (laughs) Oh, Bernie Sanders. He recently, I was tweeting about this the other day because Bernie Sanders was like, look, the Inflation Reduction Act is good. But... It needs to be better. And like, we need to do more. And he, he, and he endorsed the bill, right? Like he signed to pass the bill. Okay. For anyone gets upset. Okay. He passed the bill. He helped, but he was coming out and basically being like, this is a good step, but we need to do more. It's not good enough. And people were like, Oh, Bernie, why are you decrying this bill? And it's like, because it's his job. It is his job job to review and criticize legislation because it doesn't do enough yeah (laughs) like medicare can now negotiate drug costs for a certain mm -hmm. number of drugs starting in a few years and but like the best option would be them being able to negotiate all drug costs immediately. Yes. How many people are going to die because they can't get their insulin before then? Like, I know that, like, 
stuff like that takes time to implement. But everybody is like, yeah, by 2026. Okay, what about 2022? Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> okay, like I, and I'm not upset. I am very grateful that the Inflation Reduction Act is being passed. It is a good step and it is objectively a good thing that it's happening. I just agree with Bernie, oddly enough, I agree with Bernie Sanders on something. It's it's not a situation where we can say, cool, we did stuff, we're done. Yeah. There's just way too much shit that needs to be fixed for that to be enough. It's like I remember when Sandy Hook happened and some random legislation got passed in Florida, I think, limiting the sale of like certain firearms. But it was like, it was being reported by the media as though like oh these certain firearms are being limited for sale as a result of sandy hook and it's like sandy hook happened in connecticut this law was passed in florida and also has nothing to do with sandy hook and and so like people act like oh something was done because of sandy hook no nothing has been done we need you and we need to keep screaming and yelling until something is done. And that's what Bernie Sanders is here for. He's here for the screaming and yelling. Until we do enough. Yes, exactly. And he can go to rest with his mittens. Yes. I remember when the uh, inauguration happened. He got there, he sat down, he attended, and then he left. And people were like, so disrespectful. And it's like, no, he has a job to do. And he's going to go do it. I'm sorry that you, you misunderstand what we're here for he's your employee he's working for you sorry (laughs) look i understand that we have an entire party that makes their whole life about spreading a bunch of bullshit and not doing their jobs and Mm -hmm. just refusing to vote for anything or bring forth any meaningful legislation but that doesn't mean everybody's gonna do it exactly just because the republican party is the party of showboating and getting nothing done doesn't mean that's what the rest of us are doing sorry sweetie not sorry that's not me defending the democratic party they're on thin fucking ice actually many of them have already fallen through the ice let's be really clear here <laughs> mansion oh. really mansion cinema C- really cinema <laughs> pelosi pelosi god Every time a Republican finds out that most leftists hate Nancy Pelosi, their brain melts through their ears. Yeah, I really don't understand the Republican thing with Nancy Pelosi. Because I'm like, I've never really met anyone that's like, I love Nancy Pelosi. There was this this TikTok the other day that was a stitch and someone was like, yeah, what if this raid was happening at Obama's mansion? And someone stitched and was like, good. If, if Obama did something incriminating and they raided his house and found evidence of criminal activity, good. I want, I would want him to be imprisoned for that. I am, I don't want to say a fan. I appreciate Obama as a president. He committed a lot of war crimes and I will always acknowledge the fact that he committed a lot of war crimes. Lots of, lots of drone strikes um, against his record. I think he was a good president, generally speaking. But if he committed criminal acts, I would want him to be prosecuted. I don't give a shit if he 
is a good president. I don't give a shit if he is technically aligned with the party that I vote for. It doesn't matter to me. Like, this isn't identity politics. I'm not voting for him because he says he's a Democrat. I'm voting for him because I think he's a good president. Like, I don't understand, like, how did we get so lost in our democracy? I, how are we talking about American politics? <laughs> Again, none of our listeners, very few of our listeners are American. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying is I don't understand the concept that a lot of people have primarily on the right and not just in America, just in general, if you're right wing to latch on to a single person and justify any thing they do and pretend that everyone else will do the same. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I am fully capable of accepting that somebody I thought was good or that I liked was actually yeah. bad. Why see do our, people think this is See both this? of our episodes about J.K. Rowling. I'm sure both of us at various points in our lives thought that J.K. Rowling was great. And now we're like, no, this bitch sucks. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, she is awful. Um, before we get into the book, though, I just now have a reason to give our dear friend Robin a shout out. So yesterday, I made a joke tweet. I said, deep breathing? Positive thinking? No. My preferred coping mechanism is telling people my parents got married on April 1st and divorced 26 years later, officially pulling off the world's longest April Fool's prank. My mom felt the need to chime in and say, actually, the divorce was not finalized until we'd been married for 29 years. So shout out to her. <laughs> but then Robin, just just now, as we were recording this, I got the notification, said, submit this to the Guinness Book of World Records. I bet it is the longest. Oh, my God. That is true. My parents got married on April 1st of 1989. <laughs> April Fool's Day. And I I believe, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, mom, because she is listening. I believe my, my grandmother told them that she would kill them if it turned out that it was a prank. Oh. <laughs> It wasn't a prank for many years. Uh, actually, I don't know. I don't know if it wasn't a prank. <laughs> it would be a really involved prank. They made a child out of it. So. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you gotta go. It's like deep undercover prank. Deep undercover prank. They were like, to make this believable, <laughs> let's have a child and make it a complete smartass. So that when we when we divorce 20, 29 years from now, oh, they'll make it'll, stupid jokes about it. It'll spread all over the interwebs. <laughs> all right. Love you, parents. I love you guys. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> so the book. There chapter is a eight. book. Yes. Chapter eight of this book. So... First thing that happens, R wakes up to the sound of screaming 
and can immediately tell it's not coming from the school. And thank you, Isaac, for the literal second line of the the chapter being about our spitting bugs out of his mouth. <laughs> I really needed that in my life. Sometimes uh, when you fall asleep, bugs crawl in your mouth. It's just the truth. I'm just going to die. <laughs> so R finds Julian departures, which I'm, I'm really curious how he knows that it's departures. Yeah, he can't look. We'll let this one slide, but hey, Isaac, he can't read. How does he know that it's departures? Yeah, that was like my first thought, and I was like, How? "Buddy, <laughs> we've been over this." Anyway, Julie's surrounded by a bunch of zombies, and she's wielding a hedge trimmer, an electric hedge trimmer. Where she got it, I don't know. Somewhere, <laughs> she found it. Uh, so R immediately attacks, shatters his fists, punching one zombie's jaw and collapsing it. Uh, and then he brutally permadeaths a few more zombies. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and he manages to hold them off and by screaming Julie's name as that's the only way he knows how to communicate. Yeah. This is not food. This is a person. Uh... And then we figure out that the the zombie whose jaw he shattered is M. And M gets up and he's like, the fuck? <laughs> so they argue. And the bonies arrive and start being all creepy. And they show R all these pictures they've taken of the living slaughtering the dead. And R's like, I don't give a fuck. And just throws him on the floor. And dust off. He's like, I dust off my hands. Yes, he smacks <laughs> the dust off his hands on his pants. Uh, so he then turns to Julie after the bonies shamble off, and is like, <clears throat> "Why are you trying to leave?" And she's like, "It's been a few days. We agreed I could leave after a few days, but R's upset because he wanted to take her home." <clears throat> And she points out how fucking stupid the situation is overall. And it's like, what did you expect to happen? Yeah. And R fantasizes about them escaping somewhere until Julie decides to hug him. It's very sweet. It is very sweet. (laughs) She's so trusting. (laughs) Like, she's only known him for two days and she's like, I trust you enough to hold you close to me. We also find out that apparently the Bonies have a hobby. Yeah. Taking pictures. So they have these Polaroid cameras and they just go out sometimes on feeding trips and follow the zombies around, taking pictures of them getting killed. And they have an entire room just like push pinned. With these photos all over the walls. And sometimes they'll just make zombies stand in there and stare at them. It is weird shit. Yes. So, next scene, R and Julie return to the plane, uh, picking some flowers along the way. Also, R slams two zombies' heads together that just pop out of nowhere. Yeah. 
in a fantastically it's, comedic moment. It's so casual the way, like, anytime Isaac wants to convey that, like, yeah, these zombies tried to attack, but it wasn't a big deal. He always, it's like one sentence. Like, when they were in the car and the kids kept, like, lunging for Julie, he's like, oh, I just kept smacking them back. And then for these, he's just like, oh, two zombies lunged at Julie, but I just smashed their heads together and they collapsed. And it's like, yeah, don't worry. It wasn't a big deal. So ours like, I must have done martial arts in my life. Yes, because he, he definitely be killing these zombies with ease. <laughs> zombies. Um, so Julie laments the absence of flowers in her new life. And R expresses guilt over the fact that his people are to blame, basically, for all of the misery that the living deal with. And Julie's like, um, bro, it was hell before the zombies. Do you not remember what it was like before the zombies? And that's when we find out there was global flooding, social and political collapse around the world, and there were constant wars and bombings. And since this is taking place in the U.S., that means that, like, even major countries were just wrecked. Yeah. They were already falling apart. The... We'll get to it later, but it, like, it says a lot about the way that Perry and Julie both experienced the apocalypse differently. Coming from different areas of the country. Doom. So, uh, yes, Julie's like, yeah, zombies are the primary threat, but she doesn't think that they're the actual problem. Mm -hmm. That there's something smaller and deeper going on. Yeah, they are. Hear me out. Zombies, in this sense, could be equated to guns in America, where it's like, yeah, the guns are the physical threat. But the actual problem is people and and an, an inclination towards violence. And I, I feel that's a pretty decent parallel for the zombies in this book. Because it's like, yeah, the zombies are actually physically threatening the human beings. But their inability to work together and keep a cohesive society together without warring with each other and causing all of these problems like climate change and famine is what's really killing them. Because, like, I mean you can destroy most biological threats if you manage to work together. That's that's a pretty common theme in a lot of zombie literature, is that, like, the biggest issue is that we can't manage to work together. Humans suck. They do. Humans are, humans are a plague. It is true. Um, so, yeah, Julia wonders if there's any purpose to the quote-unquote life that they currently live. Uh, which is focused only on survival. And as they sit in the plane, she talks about how cool it is that R lives in one and how she misses seeing them in the sky. So then R goes over and turns on uh, Come Fly With Me on the Frank Sinatra record. Yes. And as he rests on the floor, Julie puts a little daisy in his hands, which makes him look like a corpse. And then she's like... You know, I, I have a lot of trouble believing you're a zombie when you smile. It's almost like he's not really a zombie anymore. <laughs> yeah. But. I think 
because she talks about the concept of whether what they're living currently can be called life. Mm-hmm. And the zombies are basically living the same existence, but lacking yeah. in motivation. So we have the living and the dead, but in reality, the living and the dead, because we see in these few chapters, in the next few chapters, what even more of what life is like for the living that have survived yeah. at this point. And it really is the same. It's just yeah. scrounging for any means. There's no joy or fun or yeah. pl- it's all just survive, it's survive, survive. Survival for the sake of survival rather than survival for the sake of having a life. And that is obviously a very purposeful parallel because the zombies only they like they shuffle through life they don't have any real motivation and the only thing that they focus on is eating right and julie says that in their stadium they don't have flowers they only have crops because the soil is is really really well perry will explain that the soil doesn't have a lot of nutrients left in it so they have to conserve the soil that they use and they only use it for crops And so when you think about it, their crops are the same as human beings are to the zombies. It's literally just a means of survival and they don't see any other point in what they're doing. Um, They make a lot of comments in this section. We'll talk a lot about this concept throughout this section because there's things that they bring up. Like there's a point where someone says, do people even read anymore? Who cares? I mean, you're not, reading isn't part of survival. They're only living to stay breathing rather than living to have an actual life, which is a huge thing that Julie tries to combat. Not just in this, not even, not even just in this section, not just in this book, but throughout the series, you see her having that focus on like, what the fuck is the point? Like, why are we even still trying if we're just going to basically have this meaningless existence? And I resonate a lot with that. I find it very funny considering where humanity comes from because it's only recently relatively that we've had the capacity to not focus so much on survival Mm -hmm. it was really hard to keep living just a few hundred years ago yeah so And a lot of things that we take for granted now, like reading, were luxuries. There's something you had if you happened to be born into a wealthy family where trying to survive wasn't the primary thing. So it's like humanity finally achieved the state, reached a state where it didn't just have to struggle to survive, and then it doomed itself. And I think it gets to the underlying, because she talks about what there's something smaller and deeper going on. And I think the smaller and deeper thing is literally just a lack of respect for life. Yeah. And I think um, there is some commentary on this throughout the series. I cannot remember how much of it is like prevalent in this book specifically, but a huge downfall for humanity. And we've already talked about the fact that I'm an anarchist, right? A huge downfall for humanity as a whole is uh, the concept of the market and capitalism, because 
what you said about us only recently having the ability to have leisure is true to a point. What we found is that it's sort of on a bell curve where in the earlier days of civilization, there was a lot of leisure because people, you know, people were like hunting and gathering and they were also generating like they were planting crops and stuff like that and they were subsisting, but they also like they didn't have the market. They just kind of existed to exist, which like like when I mean, we've talked about the largest building that was found in the ancient civilization of Mahenjadaro was literally a bathhouse. Like it's their largest remaining structure is something that was used for leisure. And so it's like you look at these ancient civilizations and what they had, which was a civilization that was built around communication and like the well-being of of the group as a whole. And then you add in surplus and exchange and market and suddenly you take away what they had before this is the communism leaking out i'm sorry (laughs) and it's it's the problem that when you i'm not wholly opposed to capitalism my opposition to capitalism comes in the fact that it's entirely unfettered yes we make almost no efforts to put any limits on it because And one of the things is people think that a market, it's because I guess I do hate capitalism, but it's people think <laughs> the existence of a market is capitalism. The existence of a market is not capitalism. Capitalism is the concept that your goal is always to make more money. You yeah. have to keep increasing profits. And that's not necessary. You can have trade. You can have an exchange of currency for work or products. But if your goal is to just keep increasing profit forever because you have no limitations or regulation, then ultimately you encourage people who don't give a fuck about others to extort them and manipulate them and force us to live horrible, stressful lives. Yes. And that's what creates this existence of, of subsistence. Where it's like, you're literally working to survive. Like, you don't have anything else to go on. You are working and living purely so you can keep on going. Which is a pretty relevant concept to what we're experiencing now with the market. Like, and I say now, I don't just mean like in modern times. I mean right this fucking second. Like, how bad the market is and how terrible inflation is right now. Like, dude, Isaac, you really wrote (laughs) the future. (laughs) Yeah, we you're, are... You're really uh, omnipresent. I don't know how to tell you this. <laughs> it really speaks to me as somebody who... I've struggled a lot with work, with the concept of a job in my mm-hmm. life. Because as soon as I start doing a full-time job, it tends to take up most of my energy. And so then by the time I'm done with it, I don't feel like... Like, I don't have the energy left in me to write or Mm -hmm. to make something that I care about. And so what I end up doing if I work a full-time job is just go home and watch anime or play games. It's like, I enjoy them, but eventually what it does is it makes me feel like there's no purpose. I'm literally just working to keep existing. And it puts me in a really bad- Yeah. The leisure time is all that you're working for. Like you work so that you can continue to have the games that make it easier for you to get through your work day. Exactly. (laughs) 
it's it's awful and so it's i'm like yeah i really grasp how fucked up the situation is because it's something that i've struggled with my entire adult life yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely what we're saying is good job mr marion you did a good job (laughs) did a good job uh so Later on, Julie wakes up and explains to R that Nora saw him taking her and that the living will come to the hive and destroy them if he keeps her there. It'll take a while to figure out where she is exactly because there's a bunch of different hives, but they will come and they will fuck the zombies up. And she does not want the zombies to get fucked up because she's like, you guys are just trying to survive. It's not your fault. Yeah. Um, Very compassionate of her. Yes. So I think it's, and I don't even because th- I think some people will go, but they're zombies. It's stupid. And it's like, well, think of when you're a- the zombies really aren't any different from humans being at war with other humans in another country. And how often are you sitting there like, yes, I actually want bad things to happen to random individuals in this society that we happen to be engaged in warfare mm-hmm. with. Because I don't, generally, no. they're just normal people. And that's the kind of thing. It's like, these zombies are just zombieing around. Yes, their existence involves hurting the hum- the living humans. But the living humans' existence involves hurting the zombie. It's like, they aren't... Mm-hmm. The, the zombies don't get to choose what their food source is. Zombies are not inherently evil. They're just, they exist. And the thing that they need to survive is humans. It's like... Humans need water to survive. I mean, it's uh, water isn't sentient, so like I guess it's not like quite the same. But like, yeah, it, it. That's basically what they're saying is like the zombies have no choice. This is all that they have. They can't choose. They didn't choose to be zombies. People <laughs> I don't often think. are bad at processing the concept of choice in relation to acts that we dislike mm-hmm. where sometimes people do bad things or things we consider bad, not because they're bad, but because it's just necessary. Yeah. I I like to equate it to uh, anytime uh, like weirdo alt-right people are talking about how a lot of Jews had jobs in concentration camps and would like be in the SS and it's like yeah that's what they had to do to survive dude I don't like (laughs) what are you talking about like how can or the fact or like weirdo alt-right people who are like yeah you know black people owned slaves too and it's like yeah because otherwise they would have been enslaved themselves what are you what's your problem oftentimes when an entire system is constructed to exploit or hurt people you have no choice but to partake in the system yeah if you do not want to be hurt or exploited yeah (laughs) Uh uh-huh i literally work in the healthcare field and i have to charge exorbitant amounts of money to people who do not have it to receive their health care i don't like that I don't like that I have to do that, but like, it's the best job I could get. So I got to survive. I'm sorry. I don't like that that system exists, but I got to pay my rent. I apologize. 
Yeah, you're not you're not the one setting the rules. You just are stuck working within the system. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> while we talk a lot about socio-political uh, things when we read this book, it's really weird. It's very relevant. Um, so, anyways, yeah. So the hive's gonna get destroyed if she stays, and R is initially willing to accept death. And then he's like, wait, no, that's right. Yeah. I decided I want to live. Damn it. <laughs> um, Fuck, I decided to live today. So then he starts processing the rest of the dead around him. The fact that they may not just be meat because he's like, you know, I've always just thought of them as kind of walking meat. They're just things that exist. They're not people. Mm-hmm. And now he's like, well, maybe they are people. maybe there's people under there because all of them just treat it like nothing happened when another zombie dies but it's like that's a person Mm -hmm. it's it's almost like when you just ruthlessly slaughter people in war as if they're not human beings but in reality they, they are human beings yeah um so yeah then he tells julie he needs to think and to lock the door behind him when he heads out and then he finds M putting his face back together. Yeah. And M just pretty pretty much just forgives R. He's like, yeah, it's cool. How's my face doing? And R's like, <laughs> it's, it's iffy. And he's like, eh. Um, so R apologizes and is like, hey, I've been different. R, and M's like, why? And R's like, I don't know. Um... But he eventually managed to communicate that he's in love with Julie. And M teases him. But when R says he's going to take Julie home, M's like, hey, what what the hell is going on with you? Yeah. And R's just like, I'm changing. And instead of joking about it more, M is really serious. And he's like, you need to tell me once you figure out what's going on. And you need yeah. to tell the others I imagine the concept of, like, change in a way that is anything other than, like, rot and decay is probably very foreign to them. Because you kind of are the way you are, and you don't age, and you don't grow, and knowing that someone is here and is actively, like, changing, and, like, I know we haven't gotten to the point where they're like, oh, he's turning human, like, he's not gonna be a zombie anymore, like, that's not where we're at, but, like, the thought has to be running around in their brains. Like, are you going to be able to fix yourself? Like, is that what we're talking about here? Live, my child, live. <laughs> See, I just got to really say, I fucking love M. Yeah. Because he comes off like such a douchey frat bro. But, like, a douchey frat bro who's actually cool, even though he seems like a douchey frat bro. Yeah. And I just love that character for some point, just like for some reason, just the guy who's like, I'm drinking all the beers at the party and flirting yeah. with all the ladies. But then he steps outside and finds his depressed friend on the doorstep. And he's like, let's have a meaningful chat about the emotions you're processing. <laughs> <laughs> we love a bro. We love a dude. He's a real dude. 
Um, so chapter nine, R and Julie make their way out of the airport with M acting as their bodyguard. Uh, Julie is nervous, but R reassures her he, he'll keep her safe. Um, and we should say that, like, none of the zombies, regu- none of the regular zombies are trying to attack them. Like, they're just kind of chilling out, like, watching them go like they're just curious they don't understand what's going on which i think does lend a lot of credence to the idea that there are human beings under there because they're not just mindless eating machines who are attacking julie the second they see her they're like oh this one is walking with her so therefore we won't but i don't understand what's going on (laughs) um so they make it to the departures gate where they're intercepted by the bonies who are to quote M pissed. Uh, they line up and synchronously point at Julie, which bothers R because the dead aren't typically very coordinated. Um, they open their mouths and despite the sounds being wordless, R takes meaning from them all the same. Um, and the meaning is this, no need to speak, no need to listen. Everything is already known. She will not leave. We will kill her. That is how things are done. Always has been. Always will be. It's giving me uh, Eldritch vibes. Yeah, that's one of the things I was going to say. Is it, These, the bonies, at first seem to be, the assumption seems to be that they are somehow zombies that have remained functioning beyond the entire collapse of any biological matter they are just bones yeah but the reality actually seems to be at this point that they aren't human they are something else entirely and we because he talks about the way they they're shaped and the way their bones work in these sections they don't have human proportions to their bones even their teeth are more like animal uh not fangs um they do i mean he does describe them as fangs but so it's it's uh, at some point they're very eldritch or demonic as opposed to being something human though my 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 thought is that they have some kind of like you know how there's like these concepts that you sometimes see in media of these core aspects of humanity mm-hmm. that are given form uh, yeah. throughout the ages. I feel like the bonies are some kind of long ago implemented aspect of humanity of this hatred of the other that has taken physical form yeah and is now directing existence for sure like we know that the bonies because r has said it we know that the bonies were at one point human like they were just regular zombies at some point and while some zombies will like desiccate others just become the bonies which is like We've talked previously about R's desperation to stay alive, keeping him from desiccating. I feel like the bonies probably represent the opposite of that, where, like, they resent life so much that they then become the embodiment of death, which is horrifying. And it does lend a lot of um, 
credence. I've said that twice within the past like five minutes, but it does lend a lot of credence to um, R's idea that this isn't just like a virus. It's it feels like it's the corruption of the soul of humanity. This like, is a very dark base part of humanity that has been twisted into a new entity. Yeah, it's not just like it's not the T virus. Like it's something. It's an energy that has come out of us that has created what we know as zombies. Anyway, so R and Julie run (laughs) uh, with M attacking the bonies to give them time to escape. They finally make it to their car, R miraculously remembering how to drive it. I don't know why Julie just doesn't drive, but it's okay. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Um, as they manage to get out of the parking lot. Um, I like to think that this is just our one aspect of our becoming even more human again is him just like having the muscle memory of like how to drive a car. Um, as they manage to get out of the parking lot, uh, M leads a group of bonies out in front of the car and R smashes through them, hopefully giving M time to get away. Uh, they pull out onto the highway and smile at each other as the first drops of rain fall over the city. Uh, that was our, that was one of our action-packed chapters that doesn't have a lot of, like, <laughs> yeah, that was the entire a lot of, chapter. like, ethical stuff. Yeah, that was the whole chapter. I'm sitting it's just here. a lot of, like, running and going. Writing, like, six pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you chose the, you managed to choose the, uh, the more dense chapters this time, even though they, uh, I feel like physically their length no i mean it's only four chapters so like some of them had to be longer than others but anyway chapter 10 chapter 10 r and julie are getting soaked while they're driving towards the city and julie asks if r knows where he's going and he's like yeah i do but he does not want to tell her why because it's the exact same path that they take to go hunting in the city and he's like, I just want to forget for five minutes about what a horrible abomination of nature I am and just enjoy yeah. our time together. Um, so Julius makes a joke about asking for directions and then tells R that he drives like an old lady. Yeah. She's like, let me know if you want me to take over, buddy. You kind of drive like an old lady, implying he's probably driving real slow. Which is funny because... Technically, he is pretty close to being an old lady. <laughs> and he it's funny because it that she's pointing this out because the it's like almost like R being an unreliable narrator because he's been like acting like the car is flying down the road. And Julie's like, you kind of drive like an old lady. <laughs> is it that Julie wants to be in Fast and Furious? Or is it that R is driving 20 and a 60. Julie would love the Fast and the Furious because they exist for the pure purpose of existing. Like, they exist to have fun and to vibe and to just bring joy. And Julie would love that. We vibing with our motors, family. We are. Thank God for fast cars, Emmy. So the bottom of the car is filling with water after a bit. And Julie's shivering, so R finds a house, an abandoned house that's in relatively good condition, kicks the door in. Uh, Julie explores around inside before pulling out a Polaroid camera. She found the room of photos 
and stole the bony's Polaroid camera. What yeah, is this happened. bitch doing? That's literally, <laughs> I'm like, you you went and found a hedge trimmer just so like there somewhere on this airport is a shed with power tools that were used to maintain the airport. You just found a hedge trimmer and got it working, and now you just went and found whatever room the bonies use as their fucking council and stole their camera. Like, yeah. what are you doing? She's fucking crazy, and we love her. She's a bad bitch. She is a bad bitch. She's a bad bitch. <laughs> so R takes a photo of her, and when she tries to take it, he gives her the one she took of him instead so that they have pictures of each other. And she's looking at it, she's like, why do zombies have these weird gray eyes going on? And R's like, huh? Yeah. But she tells him that she thinks his eyes are actually very pretty, even if they're a bit creepy. Yeah. And then she wanders off. She does take pains to uh, emphasize that R's eyes are not cloudy the way most zombies are. So like his eyes are really clear. But most zombies are, like, super cloudy, which is just another way that he's, like, different from other zombies. He's not like other zombies. I read that a different way. Because I thought she said the eyes aren't cloudy like the dead. I thought she meant, like, when it's just a corpse as opposed to, like, a zombie. No. Because he even points out that his... He points out at an earlier point that he looks different from other zombies. I just... Yeah, I didn't understand it's okay that's what we're here for that's why we read the book together so that we can have our different interpretations and we can argue about why jacob wants to hold bella's hand it's because he likes her eggs (laughs) all right all right all right no more twilight no more twilight we've evolved past the need for twilight um So Julie says this. I said I was going to be writing down quotes that I really liked. Uh, There are a lot in this section. Um, So Julie says, you should always be taking pictures. If not with a camera, then with your mind. Memories you capture on purpose are always more vivid than ones you pick up by accident. I I like that quote. It says a lot about how she views creating happiness. I feel targeted as somebody who can't visualize. Okay, you know, that's not necessarily what she means. Oh, also, there's a, is this the, I think this is the chapter where she's like, do your eyes change color when you, when you eat people? And Aris, like, you're thinking about vampires. And now, I, before I say this, because I know it's just yelling about it. Before I say this, I want you to know, I looked it up because I was like, tell me. That's not a Twilight reference <laughs> because I I cannot handle if that's a Twilight reference. But I looked it up. As far as I can tell, the most widely popular usage of vampires' eyes changing colors when they feed on people is Twilight. <laughs> okay, see, that's interesting because I didn't <laughs> think... It was a Twilight thing. I thought it was just a general vampire thing. Yeah. Which makes me think that I mean, maybe it like it was before Twilight and after Twilight. Twilight was the main use of it. Yeah. And I think because Twilight's so 
iconic yeah. and prevalent that it's become a because it's also used with other vampires it's become a oh that's just a vampire thing yes i think that maybe stephanie meyer got that from somewhere Maybe a lesser known thing because it's not from the Vampire Chronicles and it's not from Dracula. And those are the two, let's be real, those are the two most popular vampire fiction before Twilight. I'm so, I'm sorry to say that is the truth, okay? Um, maybe Stephanie Meyer got it I, from somewhere. I feel like Maybe she just came up with it in her brain. What? Really disregarding Anne Rice right now. Anne Rice wrote the Vampire Chronicles. <laughs> Shit, you're right. <laughs> for I, I, for some reason, when you said the Vampire Chronicles, my brain translated that to Vampire Diaries. Oh, <laughs> no. And the Vampire Diaries did predate Twilight. That is not a thing in Vampire Diaries, also. Vampire Diaries did predate Twilight, but it gained most popularity after Twilight came out, okay? Um, it's not in... Um, the Sookie Stackhouse stuff. What's that one called? True Blood? It's not in there. Okay. So if, if Stephanie Meyer got it from somewhere, I don't fucking know where she got it from. I feel like the eyes changing color has become synonymous with vampires since Twilight. I don't want to attribute it to Twilight because I hate it. <laughs> Isaac Marion, did you include a Twilight reference in your book? And if you did, fuck you. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love your book. Please don't hate me or block me. I'll be very sad. Um, but anyway, yeah. Anyway. That's that part. <laughs> Go on. So R sits and listens to the rain and appreciating that none of the windows in the house seem to be broken. Uh, and the previous, he hoping that the previous owners found their way to safety. Dreaming about different ways they could have survived all this. Uh, but then Julie returns with clothes that she plans to try on and then just ends up making jokes about how they are way too big for her. Yeah. Literally folding the waist of a pair of jeans around her own waist. Yeah. Very much too big. Uh, so yes. then she asks R if he has to eat people to survive and points out that he hasn't eaten since he saved her. And has also rescued her many times. And then she's like, you seem to be changing. And then just wanders off and goes to bed. Yeah. And so R sits there and has this whole new mental conversation with himself. Where he's back in the airport Starbucks talking to M. But instead of having this weird disjointed conversation they're normally stuck with. They're they're speaking normally. As if they can communicate perfectly well like normal people and m questions what's happening to r whether they can even be shaped by their past when they don't have any any memory any memory of it and if they have any ability to actually make choices and R thinks that even without memories, they still have like formed a core person mm -hmm. that exists. Yeah. And they can make a choice about their existence if they want it bad enough. Yeah. Um, I love I love that commentary. Uh that at your core you are who you are. 
And I don't want to say like, and you can't change it, but like, I mean, it's just like you are who, and you don't have a choice about who you are and what makes you, you, you can choose to like take a different path or make a different, you know, decision, but like you are who you are at your core. There's, there's, this is just a brief aside, but everybody should watch the show Severance on Apple TV. It makes great commentary about that, about you are who you are at your core. I mean, think about it on a level that is most relatable to you and me. You're a woman at your core, even if you weren't born that way. Like, that's who you are, and you can't change that. You didn't choose that. You're a lady. Doesn't matter how you were born. You That's who you are, and that's who you will always be. And I think, I, whether or not he knew it, that is a really great commentary on the existence of trans people. Accurate. Hopefully <laughs> Isaac doesn't listen to us and then tell us that he does not support the trans the transes. <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> um, so, yeah. His mind ends up wandering and he go. he's trying to figure out when he did actually eat last and when was the last time he's gone this long without food. Um, but then he's pulled out of it when Julie comes in and is just like standing in the hallway impatiently tapping her foot. Yeah. <laughs> and she awkwardly invites R to share the king-size bed in the bedroom with her. Yeah. Um, which is hilarious because he doesn't sleep. Well, he shouldn't technically be able to sleep. So I'm like, why are you offering? It's, it's very, it's a very human gesture. Yeah. Despite the fact that he still should have not human qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, which you could then say is, is kind of a statement on the fact that Part of what makes people human isn't what they are fundamentally, but how we treat them and whether or not we treat them like people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, then she strips out of her clothes and because they're soaking wet still. And so R gets a, catches a peek uh, before she gets under the covers. He's like, I try really hard not to. Yeah, look, he tries very but like, hard. God, she's so hot. <laughs> And it's like, oh, I get it. She strips in front of you. Like, you can look. It's okay, buddy. She took her clothes off in the same room as you. Like, she knows. You're, allowed to, you're allowed to peek. It's okay. We but get it. Just don't be a freak. Don't be weird. <laughs> uh, so they rest as far away from one another as possible on opposite sides of the bed. Um, and R wonders if Julie reels, really feels safe with him. If she can actually comprehend how safe she is, or if she is as worried about him as a sexual entity as she is worried about him as a zombie. Yeah, because he he says that he, he wonders if Julie worries about him as a man. Yes. Or just as a zombie. And this is obviously a very big switch up in thought processing because sex just isn't a thing for zombies. Yep. But he acknowledges that he's beginning to experience new urges. 
mm-hmm. that he's never had during his post-death existence. It's very wholesome, the way that he talks about it, too. Like, he basically just wants to lay there with her. Yeah, he basically and... says he doesn't want to do anything with her, but, yeah. like, feel her head on his chest. Yeah. He just kind of wants to be touching her, which is, uh, it's a very sweet, like, the romance in this book, I, like, it's, it, it feels hokey, but it is very sweet. I can say that I very much appreciated his thinking process throughout this entire section because it's one I've had. Yes. Where he's sitting there like, is she scared of me? Does she think I'm going to do something? Can I make her feel safe? Can she feel safe with me? And it's something that I've dealt with before with people where, especially before I started transitioning and I identify as a man, I was... I was well aware of the fact that men are perceived a certain way mm-hmm. and women are going to feel unsafe around them because of how yeah. fucked up some men are. And it's like... Yeah. I mean, it's it's not every man, but um, you don't know which ones it isn't. Exactly. And so, I, it's hard. I basically had these exact same thoughts mm-hmm. before. So I'm like, I appreciate and it's this like, art. It is, it is a very humble thing to have. And like, I, I've, I, we've talked very little about Isaac Marion, like as an author, other than like saying like, oh, he wrote this well or whatever, you know, but it's like, those thoughts are not just coming out of R, a man wrote them down. <laughs> so it's like, it's one of those things that's like, it, it's very comforting for me as a not man to know that there are men who have these thoughts because it's like if you are hyper aware of the fact that not men are worried about men and and that you want to make sure that they feel safe that is a wonderful quality to have and i need you to know that if you are if you have a not man in your life who you've never expressed those thoughts to you should just tell them they'll appreciate that you feel that way just if you're a man and you're listening to this and you've got a not man in your life, tell them that you want them to feel safe with you and that you are aware that they will not always feel safe around other men. They'll appreciate it. Trust me. <laughs> That's my advice to you. Go get them. All you not men who or all you men who listen to our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of you. Um, um, one of you is Josh. <laughs> hi josh hi josh if you're listening <laughs> i'm not sure any woman is around josh feeling unsafe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love you josh uh so then R wonders why what the quality of his memories mean uh because before he met julie his memories were the, his memories at the time are very muffled and faint and it's all very forgettable and it's all just kind of one big blob of existence yeah but now he remembers every single moment since he met julie in very vivid detail and like understands the process of time yeah basically his life has been nothing but vivid color ever since she came into it which is I love, I love the use of color 
when describing the vibrancy of life. Like, describing your life as being covered in colors or being in black and white until something happens and suddenly your life is in color. It's very beautiful. 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 It's beautiful. So, R rests with his eyes closed and falls into a series of Perry's memories that it may or may not be him actually falling asleep and dreaming and the dreams are Perry's memories or... It could just be him still being awake, but having visions of Perry's memories. We don't really know. But he's have he's seeing Perry's memories despite the fact that Perry's brain is is gone. He's already consumed it. He shouldn't be seeing anything now. But somehow there's still some aspect of Perry lingering around showing him things. Yeah. So first we have Perry and Julie having dinner with Julie's dad and it's very tense and awkward. Perry we see is a lot more sensitive and honest with his feelings at this point as opposed to the very hardened and kind of dead inside person he <clears throat> became. Um, Julie's dad pushes him to become a builder and like do the engineering stuff like his father does but Perry actually enjoys working with the crops because he likes to see life growing and feel like he's creating life. Yeah. And Julie tries to connect this to the fact that before her mom ran away, uh, her she had bought a tree to put into the living room of the house to piss Julie's dad off. Because he made it a very modern, sleek thing, and then she brought a tree in. But then he ended up taking care of it all the time. And then he loses his fucking mind and goes off about how take it, you can't love plants, and plants just eat up resources and then leave and die and ultimately mean nothing. And it is very... It feels very heated and influenced by the fact that Mm -hmm. his wife just disappeared as in like she ate up his life and years and then just was gone as if she died and also it's very indicative of some of the stuff we were talking about earlier with life which is just not having value for the fact that a life exists it has to provide something in return to you yeah. And that's very much how he feels. It, there's not a value in simply having life. Yeah. I also feel like the tree is not just a metaphor for Julie's mom, but also for Julie herself. Because he likely sees... Because, like, Julie's mom bought this tree because he made the room look the way she didn't like it to look. But then she stopped taking care of it. So the dad took over taking care of it. Okay, flash forward to when Julie was 12 and her mom left. And so now he's stuck taking care of Julie. And w- there's there's going to be a lot more exposition on Julie's relationship with her dad down the road in the book, not necessarily in this section. But like, I feel like it's a pretty decent metaphor for the fact that he's an army, like he's an ex-army guy, right? And whether or not he actually like wanted to have a kid I don't know at this point. I don't remember. 
But, like, he's now being strapped with taking care of Julie, whom he frankly does not understand because she's clearly much more like her mother than she was like her father. So, like, he has the responsibility of taking care of the plant and now he has the responsibility of taking care of Julie and he doesn't want to take care of either of those things. So, I... I it's... I don't know. I think <laughs> we'll explore it a lot more later, but I think it's a great metaphor for the way that he views, like you said, life in general, but also specifically the life of his child yeah, we're that he never wanted to be responsible for. We're, we're going to experience it more in five seconds. Yes. <laughs> because things stay awkward after her dad goes off and Perry starts going over some of his other interests, like fixing motorcycles and how he's good with weapons and julie's dad does not process any of the information perry's giving him in a way that is like hello you are a human being that is close to a human being i care about and so i'm interested in you as a person everything he says julie's dad's like Oh, you do this? Well, then you would be good to... You would serve this purpose well. You would serve this purpose well. We can make use of you like this. Nothing is about him being a human being. Everything is about how he can be used basically as a tool. Yeah. And that's kind of how her dad uses everything. There is a goal. And everything is done in service of that goal and nothing else matters. Yeah. Um, I mean, he is the, Julie's dad is the entire concept of living to survive. Yes. Uh, like he is just like, he is the metaphor. You did it. There's the metaphor. <laughs> so Julie tells Perry to tell her dad what he really wants to do, but he cuts himself off. And R asks what he was going to say, at which point we kind of, the memory kind of devolves into a conversation with Perry, Julie, and R. And Perry acknowledges R and is like, hey, take care of her. And R's like, cool. And Julie's like, can you guys stop having conversations without me? It's really awkward. Yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, hey, Perry, can we spend the rest of our time in a nicer memory? Because this memory fucking sucks, bro. Yeah. So then we flash into a different memory. Uh, and it's Julie, Perry, and Nora smoking pot at a flooded city port. There are no more beaches in the world. The beaches are now being newly formed, basically, because of all the flooding. Uh, so Julie asks what they want to do, and Nora says she'd like to be a nurse because civilization's not going to last long enough for her to finish a seven-year medical degree and become an actual doctor. Um, yeah. And Perry says he wants to be a writer. This is what Julie wanted him to tell her dad in the last scene yeah. that he wouldn't say. Um, and Nora mocks him, basically saying, does anyone even read anymore? And he admits yeah. that he thinks it's stupid. But Julie disagrees and says that even if he just writes on little notes for her alone to read he should do it while nora questions if writing a book for one person is even worth it and <laughs> that is so meaningful because 
the entire purpose of creation for a creator is simply to create and hopefully somebody cares and if that thing literally reaches an entire one person and makes an impact on them that's all that matters that is all that matters since uh, mid last year i have been writing a slew of participatory fan fiction uh for my dear friend gina hi gina she's not listening but uh i have written over 400,000 words of fan fiction since the middle of last year. And do you know how many people read it? Just Gina. one. Just Gina. Gina's the only one who reads it. Uh, sometimes I'll send little excerpts to people if I really like them. But, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to most people because it's literally just our extremely self-involved fan fiction. And it brings me joy because it brings her joy. And that is a reason to keep doing it. It's just fun to do. And I really resonate with what Julie, with the shit Julie is putting down right now, specifically this part. It is a concept. It's, it's very funny to me because this is being written in a book by somebody who is yes. a writer. <laughs> and it's something that's talked about a lot with publishing and stuff in general is it doesn't matter. Like, there are reasons people want to get published and generally it's because you get money for it and you need money to survive. But you don't write something because you want to be famous or you want to get published. You're writing because you want to create something. Yes. And Nora is viewing this as a end goal is making money, being famous, being read by a lot of people she literally asks like is there a publishing industry anymore it's like that's not the point (laughs) the point is simply creating because it makes you happy and it makes somebody else happy too and that's all that matters i believe it was playwright jonathan larson who said the opposite of war isn't peace it's creation and that is oftentimes all that we have unless and i think you're creating nuclear <clears throat> weapons shut up <laughs> <laughs> shut up <laughs> anyway go on uh so yeah then it's julie's turn and she has a whole list of things like painter and poet and pilot and r talks to her and says that she will do everything that she wants to do and she can change the world And Julie thanks him and then asks him if he will be able to let her go when the time comes. And the memory ends. And it's very interesting in this sense because we read it and we're going, okay, yeah, this is Julie. But in reality, this isn't Julie. This is the Julie that exists in the mind of Perry. Yeah talking to R. Julie has nothing to do with this. Yeah. Anyways, Julie is still asleep when R wakes up. So he steps outside and is stuck pondering over the question of whether he can let her go. Um, In the past, he'd not been afraid of losing things, but 
because he knew he wouldn't feel anything and it would be easy. But now he's like, I don't, I don't want easy anymore. And then he goes back inside and Julie's awake and she's like, hey, breakfast. And he's like, we can be at the stadium in an hour. And then she realizes that she should call her dad and picks up a landline because apparently the landlines still function. This is this is not me saying apparently they still function. This is actually written. They managed to make yeah. the landlines continue functioning. Um, what I will say is when we were, when I was in the seventh grade, so you would have been in the eighth grade, we had a massive storm in our area. And uh, there was a huge power outage. And for days, the only thing that we had was the landline <laughs> because they they literally function on a hard grid that is not affected by whether or not everything else has electricity. If there is one thing I believe would last an apocalypse, it's landlines. <laughs> I don't know anymore because I haven't had a landline since like 2012. In the past, but they would have. Yeah. Absolutely. And this book was written in the past. Yes. So. <laughs> so yeah, Julie calls him. And he's clearly upset. And we only hear Julie's side of it arguing with him, telling him that she has a car and she's going to be there soon. But he is clearly very insistent that he is going to come find her. Um, and she is really shaken up after the call, even shrinking away from R when he goes to touch her. And he, she ends up asking him if he can go find some gas on his own to put in the car. So he agrees and then he heads out and gives her time to process. But when he gets back with the gas, Julie is gone. Yeah, she left him a couple of photos, which have words written on them. They're both pictures of her. Um, one of them is like her waving. Uh, basically saying goodbye and she had written things on them because they're polaroids and she wrote things on them but he can't read them <laughs> which is so tragic because like who knows what she wrote <laughs> i mean i don't i don't remember if he like keeps them and we revisit this later but it's it is really sad he does not keep them oh he doesn't keep them no because in this scene he says that he leaves them behind because he's not ready okay. to say goodbye okay got it i i just missed it at least i'm pretty sure that's what happened yeah no i mean i believe you i miss things all the time we've been over this we talked about this before the podcast started i'm kind of dumb so like <laughs> why do you want to fight me i don't i don't want to fight you <laughs> r starts to head back to the airport and he's uncertain if he's going to be given a full death as the consequence of his previous actions but then the storm starts to pick up again and he notices that he's actually getting cold and he feels himself shivering. So he finds a tree, a tree to use as cover from rain <laughs> <laughs> and falls asleep on the ground. And he actually has his own dream this time where he's in a back in the plane with Julie and she's being very cold and questioning him over what he expected to happen happen and is mocking him for hoping that there would be some kind of miracle. Um, 
And then she which is not no. <laughs> not what she would say. No. And then she starts speaking in third person, saying that Julie is gone and that she will go back to her place and he will return to his and everything will be as it always has been and will be. And it's very clear that this is actually a bony wearing Julie's skin. Um, yes. And so Julie opens her mouth and it's filled with the same teeth the bonies have. And she kisses R and begins to eat him from the mouth to the brain. Yeah. It's clear that this is a manifestation of his own self-doubt. If we follow the metaphor about depression from the first episode, um, this is him just being like, him feeling like this was self-prophesized because how could he possibly ever be with her? How could he make a life with her? Look how different they are. Um, And so he believes that this was inevitable. This was always going to happen. Yeah. But instead of waking up disheartened, he wakes up pissed. Oh, yeah. He's super pissed. He's like, fuck those bonies. Fuck their rules. Fuck the world. Uh, And just denies the reality that the bonies have decided to dictate. Uh, So then he sees someone coming towards him and he prepares to fight. Not sure if it's a human or possibly a lone zombie. Because apparently lone zombies just sometimes attack other zombies because they can't even figure out what is what anymore yeah uh but it's actually him and he's in rough shape but he tells r that he was driven out by the bonies and that a group of nine other zombies actually followed him no zombos sorry (laughs) i did write zombos yes gotta make sure that you read what you wrote (laughs) so r and julie started some shift and everyone can feel it and so now we have the 10 disciples of r i guess um (laughs) r is zombie jesus is that the metaphor we're following now he's bringing salvation i mean he is but like Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't like this metaphor. I just watched Evangelion. No, I, I got I got Jesus metaphors up in this bitch. Um, so R tells M that he's going to go save Julie again, and M's like, "From what?" And he's like, "Everything." Yeah. Um, because he knows what shit, how shitty her life is at the current moment. So he's like, "We're gonna fix this shit." Um, and M tells R that he had his own dream for the first time. So they both had a dream. And the dream, M's dream actually seemed to be a memory of his past where he started to feel the sensation of love again. And he tells R that he's going to help him and asks the others if they will too. And they agree. So the group begins heading towards the city and the stadium with a sense of purpose. My note on this was when M is like, he basically is giving a pep talk. He's giving a a big, he's giving a big Jeff Winger speech to the rest of the zombies. And he, but like he has very limited amounts of words that he can say, right? So he turns to them and he's like, help, save Julie? And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he's like, help f- 
find something lost. Help exhume. And it's just, it's just so fucking good. The, like, the choice of words here is just so good. Because, like... You're really exhuming yourselves and making yourselves yes. human again. They are, like, the, the, like, the, the life and death metaphors are obviously extremely heavy-handed in this book. Like, if you read this book and you don't understand it, I feel bad for you because, like, how? But, like... They're finding something that was lost. They're finding their ability to empathize and love again, which is truly what humanity lacks and what has led to this downfall, right? But they're helping to exhume themselves, exhume humanity, exhume what is left of the world. It's so, ah, like the the way that they, that he writes the dialogue for these characters in such limited, with such limited syntax, while still managing to like really punch you in the face with the like higher meaning. Mm. So good. So good. I really like this because it is a very clear example of the bystander effect because yes. R is not special. I mean, he is to us because we're in his head. Yeah. And we're like, well, he's not as decayed and he can speak more. But, like, M could also speak more than most other zombies. So like, M's special, too. Yeah. But it's also, we're not in the other zombies' heads. So some of them could also be special. We don't know. R is just an individual. But because he's making a choice to act, it drives others to act. And the most important thing when facing a problem is just one person making a choice to act. Yes. And because R has done that, he's lit the fire. Yes. In moments of crisis, like when you're when you're learning how to deal with crisis as like, I'll take my experience as uh, becoming a lifeguard, right? They teach you that in moments of crisis, you have to be focused and you have to be ready to make a move. Like you cannot just hope that somebody else will do it for you. There's a quote that we get from Perry's dad later in this next chapter that will that I'll reiterate this point with but like R was the one who decided to make the move he's the one who decided to save the drowning victim the drowning victim in this case obviously being himself or humanity or just the zombies in general and everybody else is acting with him they're responding to his crisis reaction which is so good it's like you're 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 extremely right like R has happenstance on his side, right? Like he ate Perry's brain and met Julie in the same in the same moment, right? And so he has happenstance. He had that happen to him and now he is making the change. That could have happened to anyone. That could have happened to any other zombie, but R is doing it and now everybody else is doing it. It's, uh, you're right. You're always right. You're so right. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty left actually. <laughs> Anyway, chapter 11 begins uh, part two, or should I say step two? Uh, we didn't talk about this in the very beginning, but part one or step one is called wanting. And we've talked about, we mentioned this quote before. Step one is wanting to change. Step two is taking it. And step two, uh, so part one is called step one, wanting. And part two is called step two, taking. And uh, ah, it's so good. Mwah. I just love, like, they're, they're no longer just wanting to change. We no longer are stuck in this phase of our desperately wanting 
to be alive. He's now deciding to be alive and taking action towards doing it, which is so good. Um, but we're in Perry's memories for most of this chapter. Um, so Perry is in the stadium. He breathes deep and appreciates how the air smells cleaner these days. He wonders about the past and bemoans how much of it we'll never get to understand. Uh, specifically, he says he wonders who had the first kiss and whether or not the first kiss was any good. Perry, clearly um, a writer. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, Julie comes by with a group of foster kids she helps look after, and Perry decides to join them on their quote-unquote field trip to the gardens where Perry works. He wonders whether or not surviving in the stadium is worth it, and Julie snaps at him not to talk that way, because he doesn't really understand the dangers of the outside world. He apologizes and promises not to talk that way anymore. And we talked earlier about um, I, I mentioned earlier that they both experienced the apocalypse in different ways. I don't remember genuinely if they talk about it in this book or if they talk about it in the prequel. But Julie's from a big city, right? So she would have experienced all of the other shit that was going on firsthand. She would have seen it all, known what was going on, even though the zombie apocalypse really didn't take hold until she was like 11 or 12, right? But Perry lived in an extremely rural area with his dad, with his parents, right? He says in his earliest memories that he doesn't know, like he didn't know what was going on. Everything that was going on with the world was happening distantly on the coast. And honestly, I think that points a lot towards why Julie and Perry had very different reactions to the hopelessness of the world. Because Perry was thrown into this when the apocalypse hit his town, right? Like he had no choice but to start experiencing it very suddenly. And all of a sudden, everything he ever wanted was um, gone, you know? Julie grew up with this. Like she's known this from a very young age. And I feel like that gives us a really great insight into why Perry turned to nothingness so quickly into his life. Whereas Julie is still so full of hope because she's like, it's always been this way. You didn't like, I didn't, she didn't have the rug pulled out from under her suddenly, but she still, her whole life has had to find reasons to stay hopeful. And that's why she's stronger for it now. Not saying that people who have it hard their whole life are like always better off, but you know. Well, I also think it's a sign of how Perry affected her because she yes. literally is chewing him out in this scene for the same thing she does. She literally yeah. does this exact same thing a few chapters ago where she's saying, yeah. is this life worth living? But I think I think what happened is he influenced her and made her question, yeah. like finally say, is this worth living? But instead of giving up like he did, we see that she's taken, made the choice that they have to find another way. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, so Perry talks to his dad about possibly having a girlfriend and his dad seems happy for him. We see in this part that Perry's dad is extremely different from Julie's dad. Oh, yeah. um, he's very positive and he wants Perry to chase happiness versus just like surviving. So Perry wonders aloud if falling in love in a world so full of danger and death is even worth it. And his father discourages these thoughts, essentially saying that there is never a bad time to find or be in love. Um, he basically says that, like, 
I got 19 years with your mom, but I would not have made any choice different if I knew I only had one year or one month. Um, and Perry is like snarky and he's like, what if you only had one week? And his dad is basically like, shut up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so Perry's dad says, this is another quote that I love. Uh, there's no benchmark for how life's quote unquote supposed to happen, Perry. There is no ideal world for you to wait around for. The world is always just what it is now. And it's up to you how you respond to it. Um, and I feel like that's actually extremely poignant um, all the time, always. Because, you know, we we can lament as much as we want that we want change to happen and we want to live in a better world. But like... One thing doesn't exist change in, it. Yes. And also you still live in the world as it is right now. So you either need to accept that you live in that world and do what you can to either make change or find happiness, or you're always just going to be stuck in this cycle of just wishing the world was better. You know, uh, I think it was John Lennon who said life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Like if you, if you wait, if you spend your whole life waiting around for things to get better, it never will. So, I mean, you may as well just find happiness where you can. And another great moral from everything, everywhere, all at once. Anyway. (laughs) Um, so, (laughs) so Perry worries about the world ending soon and his dad reassures him that they're going to keep fighting to fix things and tells him not to give up on humanity just yet. Yeah. He's basically like the world isn't ending next week, dude, go kiss your girlfriend. God, (laughs) what's the point of living if you can't find any happiness? Um, So Perry's voice comes through to R at this moment. And he says, uh, do you know what happens next? Like, you know, do you know what's where we're going from here? And R is like, why are you showing me this? Perry's like, I'm not ready to disappear. I'm still here and I'm not ready to be gone. And R says that he isn't ready to disappear either. And Perry says, good. And then keeps going with his memories. Like, they're adversaries, but, like, they are both, like, it's like they're teammates. Like, they're both working towards the end goal of saving what is left of this life. Um, So Perry sits on the roof of the foster home. The next scene, sorry. Perry sits on the roof of the foster home where he now lives following the death of his father. Um, Julie climbs up to join him. And while he cries about the pointlessness of everything... She insists that love and compassion are the only things that make life worth getting through. We hold on to our memories and use them to build a foundation for whatever future we're looking forward to. She says, quote, the past is made out of facts. I guess the future is just hope. Perry replies, or fear. And Julie very sternly says, no, it's hope. The present is made out of fear. Yes. The present is if you indulge in it or if you have generalized anxiety is fear. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the future is hope. And I, I'm glad we decided to read this as like a solution to my mental health crisis. Cause it really is bringing me a lot of, (laughs) like it really is like doing a lot of good for my mental health. I'm not not going to lie. This is genuine. Good job team. (laughs) (laughs) So we cut back to R and the rest of the dead as they make their way through the city toward the stadium. M and the others have to stop to feed while R abstains. He does note, however, that the others seem to feel at least uncomfortable with what they've done. 
They stop in an abandoned house so R can touch up his appearance and rerun his quote-unquote plan in his head, after which they head for the stadium's gates. Um, Then R dashes for the gates with his zombie friends running behind him. Uh, He acts as human as he can, basically like, help, they're right behind me, you have to let me in, you know? Um, And the guards let him inside while shooting at the other zombies. When R makes it inside, the others run off. And he says that while they were chasing him, they had their obvious, like, zombie gait. But then when they turn and, like, run off, they're acting superhuman. Like, they look, like, they they basically, like, stand up straight and just, like, run off <laughs> into the distance. And the guards are like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> what did we just see? And, like, thank God for that because it confuses them enough that, like, they're all, like, not looking at R. And R just, like, slips fully inside the stadium into the light and into the world of the living. And that is where the chapter ends. That is where the book ends. No, it's not. <laughs> that is not where the book ends, actually. Um, do you have your book in front of you? Yes. Okay. Um, so... Actually, I'm amazed that we that we like got to that really really good stopping point because <laughs> because we literally just picked a page about 60 pages after what we previously read. So, um yeah, I I loved that part. I thought it was really good. Um it had some very distinct moments that like really fed into the overall themes of the book and uh made me feel a lot of things. This whole book makes me feel a lot of things. But that part specifically, like, all of the the stuff about Perry's past. Because, you know, we've been experiencing Perry's past a lot. But, like, feeling the agency behind his past and, like, his memories is really, really good. Isaac writes a tight narrative. It does. It... Huh? I said Isaac writes a tight narrative. I thought you said it creates a tight narrative. And that's why I said it does. <laughs> He's actually, I was, so I was talking to Steffi, your wife, the other day. And she was like, not really into zombies, but Isaac's a really good writer. And I was like, well, he's writing a new book. So, you know, let's keep our eyes out for it. I'm sure you'll like that one because he'll be writing it just the same, but it won't have zombies in it. <laughs> um, but would you like to take a look at your book and we can decide where where to next? I'm, I'm imagining around page 180 to give us a good 60 pages. This is great hold music. <laughs> I need that Cisco hold music. okay hold on what okay there is a very long chapter (laughs) right around there (laughs) yeah it's very awkwardly placed so we can either read to 167 or read to 187. I'll leave it up to you. These episodes have been very long, so I feel like we could go a little bit less, or we could just go fully to 187, whatever you want to do. Let's just fucking nail it through 187. 
Okay. So next time we'll be reading through page 187. Uh, I have no idea what the future holds. I'm very excited. I don't want to say I have no idea. I've read this book so many times, but <laughs> uh, I don't know where that's going to land us specifically. Um, so if you don't have any further thoughts on the episode, we can round it out and we'll see you next week. Let's round it out. All right. Follow us on Twitter uh, at LitmastersPod. M is at M of many names. I am at Sarah S. Wilton. Shoot us an email over at LiteraryMastersPod at gmail.com or hit us with a coffee at ko-fi.com slash LitmastersPod. We are always answering DMs. My favorite part of putting out these episodes is is how you guys react. Like literally getting to read the tweets of y'all of y'all listening to the podcast this week gave me so much serotonin like it it means so much that you guys enjoy and that you feel the need to reach out to us and tell us that you enjoyed like genuinely it it makes it all worth it <laughs> serotonin serotonin yeah that's my stripper name <laughs> uh so yeah um i we already shouted out robin once this episode so good on you oh god where's lucy there's no Lucy. Lucy? I, ha- I haven't seen Lucy the entire episode. Lucy, where are you? She's around here somewhere, Jen. That was for you. But I, you know, I, I think I'm all I'm all podcasted out. I think we're good to go. Go get your hedge trimmers, you bad bitches. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>